Following the collapse of the Roman Empire in AD 476, Western Europe was plunged into a chaotic period known as the Dark Ages, so named because it was a time of relatively fewer historical records and cultural output. Feudalism rose to prominence, with the various tribes and peoples who had constituted the empire's former subjects fighting amongst themselves for land and power, eventually drawing up the boundaries that would form the borders of present-day Western European nations. During this period of socio-political turmoil, universities rose to prominence, providing some much-needed light amidst the cultural stagnation and darkness. Oxford, Cambridge, the University of Bologna, and the Sorbonne were all established some 500 years after Rome's collapse, instructing students on a myriad of subjects from art and theology to law and medicine. While Western Europe was still finding its footing, however, one of the medieval world's greatest universities, perhaps the greatest of the time, was thriving, not in Europe, but in sub-Saharan Africa. Located in the mysterious city of Timbuktu in what is now the West African nation of Mali, it was born of humble beginnings as an outpost along a West African trade route that, by the early 14th century, had garnered the reputation of being home to one of the best centers of knowledge in the Islamic world. For nearly 300 years, Sankore University, more commonly known as the University of Timbuktu, as well as the city around it, experienced unprecedented growth and prosperity before being met with a rapid decline in the late 16th century. When was higher education founded in Timbuktu? What factors led to the universities, as well as the surrounding city's prominence? And what led to its swift demise? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Today, the name Timbuktu has entered the English language as a synonym for a place that's as mysterious as it is remote. This reputation, incidentally, began in the Middle Ages, when Europeans first received word of a city deep within the interior of the African continent that was rich in gold and a veritable fount of knowledge. By the time British explorer Alexander Gordon Lang, the first European to set foot in Timbuktu, arrived there in 1826, all that remained of its storied past were three mosques and a handful of mausoleums. Unbeknownst to him, however, these surviving structures had been the most important in the whole of the ancient city, and had, in fact, been pivotal in putting it on the map. So what exactly were they, aside from former places of worship? What made them so unique? To answer these questions, we must venture way back to the year A.D. 989. In a dusty desert backwater south of the southwestern corner of the Sahara Desert, a handful of Muslim merchants and traders from North Africa and the Middle East had permanently established themselves amongst the villagers who called Timbuktu home. Though the earliest human habitation and settlements there dated back to the Iron Age, and a society flourished there from its foundation in the 5th century B.C. until roughly the early 10th century A.D., it wasn't until the supreme judge of Timbuktu, Al-Qadi Aqib Ibn Mahmud Ibn Umar founded the Sankore Mosque that the first steps were unknowingly taken to secure the city's future as a cultural and educational hub. Up to that point, Timbuktu had served as a remote outpost in a West African trade route. Soon, though, traders and merchants alike began congregating in and around the newly constructed mosque, exchanging ideas as well as goods and studying the Quran. In the 13th and 14th centuries, a flourishing salt trade contributed to the city's prosperity, which in turn brought even more merchants from across the Muslim world, trading the area's most plentiful commodity, gold, for salt. For over 200 years, this practice of exchanging ideas and intellectual discourse within the mosque was commonplace amongst people living in and passing through Timbuktu. But it was the rise of the Mali Empire in 1235, particularly under the rule of Musa I, also known as Mansa Musa, Mansa being the Mandinka African word for sultan or emperor, that the most drastic changes to Sankore would take place. 
Though Mansa Musa ascended to the throne in 1312 when his predecessor, Abu Bakari Keita II, disappeared on an expedition to explore the Atlantic Ocean, the civic projects he would undertake in Timbuktu would not be seen for another ten years or so, after his famous pilgrimage to Mecca. A lifelong and devout Muslim, he set out in 1324 with a procession of 60,000 men, 12,000 of whom were slaves, all adorned with and carrying trinkets of gold. On the way, he passed through a number of cities, including Cairo, Egypt, where it was said the price of gold dropped significantly after he bestowed a plethora of gold gifts to its citizens and officials, and Timbuktu, where he bore witness with his own eyes to the Quranic study and exchange of ideas that was taking place at Sankore Mosque. A year later, upon his return, he extended his rule to Timbuktu proper, and set about transforming the masjid, that is, mosque, into a full-fledged madrasa, school or university in Arabic, appointing mathematicians, astronomers, and jurists from across the Muslim world under the teaching staff. Thus the new university of Timbuktu was born, making the city a veritable center for Islamic scholarship. So what were learning and education like at the newly established university? Well, for starters, they were quite similar to European institutions of the day, in that they combined religious and secular subjects in the curriculum to create well-rounded individuals, but was vastly different from contemporary universities. In order to successfully graduate, one had to pass through four different degrees, each more challenging than the last. The first was the Quranic school, in which students were required to master Arabic and specific African languages, as well as commit the Quran to written and spoken memory. An introduction to basic sciences was also introduced at this level. The second degree was general studies. In this area, students were given full immersion in the aforementioned basic sciences, and were also taught in history, astronomy, physics, chemistry, mathematics, and grammar. Further Quranic studies were incorporated, including spiritual purification according to the tenets of Islam, hadiths, or the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, and jurisprudence of Muslim law. The third degree was the superior degree, in which the burgeoning scholars studied under specialized instructors while doing research. Education at this level revolved around philosophic debates or questions of religious doctrine. Graduating from this degree required students to attach themselves to a sheikh, or Islamic teacher, and demonstrating a strong moral character. Finally, the fourth and final degree was the coveted alumni level, or that of professor or judge. If a student impressed upon his sheikh, he would be entered into a circle of knowledge, comprised of other learned individuals, and therefore be elevated to the ranks of a truly respected expert in his field. If he stayed in Timbuktu after graduating, he would often become a legal and religious counsel to both the public and high-ranking officials, including the king. Upon graduating from each level, students were given a colored turban to show that they had mastered the subjects within the respective degree, and much like modern university students, would toss them into the air upon receiving their diplomas to the sound of celebratory cheers. As the university grew, so too did the surrounding city. Under Musa's rule, Timbuktu became a prosperous commercial hub, fueled by the trade of gold, salt, and a hot new commodity, books. As the number of students and scholars who passed through the madrasa's gates increased, so did the demand for books and manuscripts. What started out as a humble masjid in the late 10th century became, by the mid-14th century, a school that could easily house 25,000 students and a library one million books strong, the largest collection in Africa since the ancient Library of Alexandria. Soon word reached Europe, namely the Mediterranean, and the Middle East of the prominent golden city in the heart of Africa, and manufactured goods were soon pouring in while gold and ivory were being exported. It was, both literally and figuratively, a golden age. Upon Mansa Musa's death around 1337, the exact date continues to be hotly contested amongst historians, the University of Timbuktu continued to flourish, drawing in prospective scholars from across northern and western Africa and the Middle East. 
Then, in 1464, Sunni Ali took control of the city as well as others in the region and established the Songhai Empire, though this shift in power fortunately did little to change the university. In fact, Ali's successor, Askia Muhammad I, aligned himself, so to speak, with the students there and was thus inspired to establish other centers of learning within his dominion. The university continued to thrive until 1591, when it, Timbuktu, and the empire itself fell victim to Moroccan conquest. Over the next decade, education at the university dwindled before ceasing altogether. It truly was the end of an era. At its height, Timbuktu was a thriving center of knowledge and trade, perhaps the greatest in the medieval world. From such prosperity rose an important center of learning in which people from all over could exchange ideas as well as goods. While the university may be no more, it's proof positive that disparate individuals and groups can come together over common ground and engage with one another in intellectual and cultural discourse. Perhaps we in our own time could learn a great deal from Timbuktu and its magnificent university. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.